Welcome to the Meiji at 150 podcast. I'm your host, Tristan Gruno. On this episode, we're talking with Dr. Julian Dierkes, Associate Professor and Kadon Ren Chair in Japanese Research at the University of British Columbia. Dr. Dierkes is the author of Guilty Lessons, Post-War History Education in Japan and the Germanys, published by Rutledge in 2010. Dr. Dierkes, thank you for being here. Thank you for the invitation. So in your, your research, you've looked a lot at how the Meiji Restoration is taught in Japanese history textbooks. And I'm really intrigued to hear more about this. There's been a lot of interest, of course, in history education in Japan, largely focused on the Asia-Pacific War, because that's the controversy. Right? And we've had enough scandals in post-war um, Japan around portrayals of the nation in the context of the Asia-Pacific War. But when I was doing my research on that, I wanted expressly to include episodes that would seem non-controversial and to find out how the nation then, the Japanese nation, is portrayed in the context of a historical period that is generally seen as, um, well, for the Meiji Restoration, is actually positive generally, right? Because it's seen as the birth of modern Japan. This is where the Japan that we know today had its origins. And so the, the question then was, let's step aside for the moment from the Asia-Pacific War that is very clearly marked as a negative period, certainly from, an, from the outside, and look at, an, at a period that is seen potentially as positive, but probably as neutral. The other angle that I had was a comparative one. And so at the same time, I was looking at German textbooks in East Germany, West Germany. And then, of course, we end up with this curious parallelism, and we might even include Canada, that roughly 1870 is this momentous event uh, where we have the Meiji Restoration, like I said, birth of modern Japan. Um, in Germany, of course, we have the Franco-Prussian War and then the foundation of the German Empire. And in Canada, we, we have Confederation. And so clearly something was going on in the 1870s. But um, because of that nice parallelism and because I was trying to look at, at German portrayals and Japanese portrayals, Meiji jumped out immediately. Um, and as I looked, I looked at six episodes in total, but Meiji ended up being really interesting to me because it was so bland in the textbooks. And so I looked at uh, textbooks from almost immediately after the post-war, uh, after, after capitulation. It took a little while to get going with publishing and all that, but roughly from, from 1950 through into the 2000s. And over this period, the amount of space devoted to the Meiji Restoration decreased um, towards the end of this period, then we end up with roughly two pages in a middle school history textbook on the Meiji Restoration out of a textbook total of, you know, maybe 200 pages or so for the total textbook. And so two pages of those are Meiji. Um, and the portrayal really is one that is focused almost entirely of what you might think of as sort of the facts or the building blocks of history. So we get dates, we get some people, um, but there's really no discussion, problematization, or even hint at the, what the Meiji Restoration meant. I mean, this was such a big break, and this is why we're celebrating this, and this is why colleagues work on this, and why it's nice to have a, a series like this. It was such a transformation. Um, and, and perhaps the least interesting part is the actual restoration of imperial power, because 
I'm a sociologist by training, and so I'm not that keen on governments necessarily. I'm interested in what this means to the people or to larger groups of people. And and of course, it was a massive um, center. It was a, had a big impact uh, on on the Japanese people and on everything that happened um, thereafter. And so, given the the status it has and the importance it also had, the major restoration had for Japanese historiography. I continue to be amazed at how, uh, yeah, how bland the portrayal is. I'm surprised, particularly in the post-war, at this time when there's a number of efforts to rebuild Japan as a democratic state. And you think about the, uh, the Western historiography of Japan after the Meiji Restoration, and, and there's definitely influenced by the modernization theory. And there's this whole modernization school that's talking about Japan as a success story of liberal democratization. And most much of this is happening after the post-war. And from the perspective of the post-war, looking back on the Meiji Restoration, so, well, this is the beginning of this kind of homegrown democratic movement in Japan. Uh, does that come in at all in, in these textbooks? Or I mean, there's no talk about J you know, Japan's path to democracy after the Meiji Restoration? No, next question. <laughs> so that's that's part of the surprise, right? I mean, this is this is exactly is my puzzle, right? So the the first puzzle is internal to the textbook to say this is a big event. Um, it's acknowledged as a big event, right? It's typically described as you know this is one of the major watersheds in Japanese history. The textbooks say that, but then they don't say how. And then the other sort of dimension is the one you just raised, which is what, certainly in the immediate post-war through the nineteen sixties. Um, there was a lot of discussion about this in Japan, right? Historians, historian debates were animated, for example, by the question of, was the Meiji Restoration a bourgeois revolution or not? That's a really interesting question um, for academics, obviously, uh, but it also animated Japanese debates. And then there's another piece to that, which is, was the Meiji Restoration the origin of militarism? I mean, you talked about democratization or democracy, but a, a piece of that puzzle is also when we look for answers of why did Japan take this turn towards militarism and, and, and fascism and, uh, and the colonial war uh, on the continent, how much of that was linked to Meiji, right? And there was a dominant um, uh, American or an occupation portrayal, of course, that did make that link very clearly, right? That And that's why the imperial rescript was dropped from education, for example, right? Because... Um, reverence for the emperor was very much one of the, if not the root of the problems of the 1930s. And so, you know, in the, for the Showa emperor, that was only the, you know, that was the grandson. And so the link to Meiji is, is relatively direct. So that whole context is, is very interesting, but it doesn't show up in the textbooks. So we have some hints early on. Um, there's a uh, so there's a the the portrayals in the textbooks get more narrow over time, um, in their uh, differences and in their their breadth of discussion. So there are some earlier textbooks that we might that you can see hints of a sort of a materialist view of history uh, that discuss elements like um, poverty of the samurai class, then right, and how that leads to the Meiji Restoration, and and that of course is a much more uh, analytical historiography it's, it's of a particular bend, of a Marxist bend, mm -hmm. but it does ask a big question of what exactly was this restoration and what did it mean for the big trajectory? And so there were some versions of that. Um, there's also earlier on, there was some discussion of emancipation, 
right? That the that the major restoration also meant that everyone became imperial subjects, uh, and this is where my interest as sociologist, of course, is satisfied more, right? That that the feudal order was eliminated. Um, that of course there was a mobility then in the end, but really it wasn't emancipation because it was the people at that point who were all imperial subjects. That comes up a little bit in early textbooks, but by the 1960s, that's all gone. And we get this very empiricist uh, portrayal that, that just says, you know, here's the dates, here's the events, here's the people. This is what happened. Um, on we go. I imagine for a lot of Marxian historians, you know, this question of was the revolution a, a bourgeois revolution? Um, I mean, it, it's it's one of these academic questions, but it, it does speak to the roots of Japanese imperialism because they would say, well, it was not a it, it was a not a complete bourgeois revolution because the autocratic Meiji regime stepped in and put the reins on any sort of democratic movement that would lead to the proletariat revolution eventually. Uh, but I'm curious, when, what do you think explains this rejection of theory from maybe the more ideological historians in the, in the immediate post-war leading in the 1950s and then to a more empiricist inclination in the 60s? What, what do you think explains this? Yeah, so that, that becomes sort of a, a bureaucratic politics story, history almost, because in the immediate aftermath of capitulation, SCARP, um, the supreme commander of allied forces in Japan, of course, comes in. Um, and uh, the U.S. takes over, right? Takes over government, but takes over through the Japanese administration, right? The, the bureaucracy is not broken up. Um, and so uh, textbooks are immediately um, abandoned. The old textbooks are, are become illegal, essentially. Uh, and there's a need for new textbooks and relatively quickly because uh, the U.S. democratization uh, effort was included education very prominently. And so they wanted to get schools going again. But the occupation was acting through the, the Japanese bureaucracy. And so the, that bureaucracy at that point, vis-a-vis -vis the Americans, portrayed itself as a neutral arbiter of historiography. Said, you know, we're, we were not the militarists. We, we're just a, we're a governance tool, right? We're, the, we're the, the group or the mechanism that makes your wishes come true. <laughs> and, um, and so they said... Okay, if you want textbooks, that's great. We can do that. Uh, and we'll give you um, a textbook uh, that conforms with the expectations of democratization, uh, that gets rid of that imperialist past, if you will. Um, and in that effort, then, uh, of course, the bureaucracy didn't write the textbooks, right? We get a, a textbook approval system that has pub private publishers and, and authors writing textbooks that are approved. But um, the bureaucracy ended up leaning towards an empiricist historiography as the least threatening and the most neutral. Um, and in the end, textbook authors complied. Um, you know, some people think of that as an act of self-censorship. Um, some people think that, that that's rooted more in the actual authorship. So the history textbooks are generally written by uh, professors of pedagogy, not of history. So they, they tend to be in a kyoikugakubu rather than a, a, a history department, right? They're, they're um, education specialists. Uh, and for them, their professional life was not animated by the question of was this an incomplete bourgeois revolution or not, which, which I continue to find a fascinating question and which Japanese historians found a fascinating question. But 
specialists on education were not fascinated by that question. And so they wanted a chronology, right? A historiography that was purely organized around chronology and continues to be today. Um, contrary to sort of a global trend of a move away from chronology in, in history education, right? They, they have stuck with that today. Um, they wanted a chronology and then they wanted in the chronology, they wanted important people and events highlighted and mentioned, mm -hmm. but did not particularly care for the significance of those events and so didn't want that discussed. I, I, speaking of uh, the, getting rid of the old textbooks, I, uh, whenever I teach the occupation in my history classes, I, I always like to remind the students that history was deemed one of the three dangerous subjects uh, along with geography and ethics. And so you, I even show this clip from uh, Shinoda Masahiro's uh, MacArthur's Children, where they have to black out their old textbooks because you know, they, they can't get new textbooks overnight. Mm -hmm. So they had to keep using the old textbooks, but just using ink to cover up all the dangerous material. But that, that's fascinating. I, I didn't know that. I mean, we talked today about Japanese history education uh, in Japan being focused on empirical sources and empirical facts and, and that's it uh, and we juxtapose this to the american system where it's much more conceptual and theoretical and maybe you know there's criticisms to both i, I think but i had no idea that it, it dates all the way back to the occupation the recent textbook controversies do focus on this this question of uh, ministry of education control and people say well the ministry of education sets guidelines and, and uh, the textbook writers kind of follow those guidelines, but is is this the legacy? Do you think of those occupation reforms? Yes, absolutely. Because the um, in that interaction with the occupation, the bureaucracy won, if you will. They won control over education. Right? They won, won the right to determine the content. Um, and you know, there's been a lot of controversy and contestation around the mechanics of that. So the approval process and the back and forth between publishers, authors, and the ministry, um, and, and there's the, the membership in the committees that do this and all that. So it's, it's not a static thing at all. Uh, but the basic principle has remained the national central bureaucracy approves. Uh, once approved for use, the, you get, um, and typically approved for use are a number of textbooks, right? And then the school... Um, uh, or the school district and prefecture select the book that they actually want to use. Uh, so, the, But the basic principle remains uh, there's a national approval process. Um, and this is um, not unique at all in the world. Um, there are more centralized decision-making processes in, in many countries. North America is not an example of that. Uh, you know, in Canada, we have education as a provincial matter, and so these things happen in, on the provincial level, as they do in the U.S., as they do in other federal states. Um, so Japan isn't, un isn't unusual in that regard, um, but that has remained in place. What is a little bit more unusual um, in the Japanese case is that the historiography really hasn't shifted very much over that time period. So there's other examples uh, of highly centralized um, decision-making. Uh, you know, France is often for the education system is a good example for Japan because the, the structures are vaguely similar. Uh, French historiography in, in history education, which I'm not an expert on at all, but has shifted over this time and has become... The, the, the turn that doesn't happen in Japan over this whole period is the analytical turn, right? The, the purpose of history education 
in in many parts of the world, um, if if not most, becomes an answer to the why question. Uh, why did this restoration happen? Why was there a decision to move from a feudal system with a ceremonial head of state and a and a sort of prime minister type shogun to then a, a true empire, but emancipate. So there's so many questions in there that, that we all find fascinating. Um, but that why question isn't the big question for Japanese history textbooks. The big question there is the what, when, and who, and where, uh, not the why. And and that really hasn't shifted very much. Now, you raised uh, the question or the, the challenge posed by, by some textbooks along the way, including some what we would think of as revisionist textbooks. And they, of course, try to move a little bit in the direction of a why question um, because they try to shift a debate towards uh, some kind of a positive, what they think of as a positive view uh, of, of uh, history and of, of Japanese history particularly. Um, but the Meiji is not a big focus for them. There's no, um, you know, the, the big focus always ends up the Asia-Pacific War. But even in that context, it's not the why that's the dispute, it's the events, right? So is it a Nanjing massacre or is it whatever other term you want to use? Right. Uh, does Unit 731 get included in the narrative or not? But those are empiricist questions. Those are not questions about why did the Asia-Pacific War happen? Why did Japan start a war? Um, what led, did Meiji lead to, the, to militarism? Uh, though even in the in the revisionist textbooks, they they still roughly operate in this empiricist frame. Thinking of of the the Atarashi Rekishi Kyokusho Tsukurukai, right? This this what is the English uh, like the association to write a new history textbook? Mm -hmm. And I mean their position that they make very vocally is that we need a new history education in Japan that's not masochistic. I think that's the term that they actually use, and I think the current administration does as well. Is you know why should we be teaching our children to not be proud of their country? What is the purpose of teaching history? Is there a nationalistic uh, imperative in history pedagogy, or is it uh, we should just be teaching uh, history to students to make them good civil subjects? What are your thoughts on that? Well, I mean, I'd have to be a philosopher in education for that answer, <laughs> or a philosopher of history, of course. Um, you know, I, th there's different, obviously, there's many different answers to that, right? Personal answer, uh, as you can tell, I'm German from my accent. And so this, the, the, the German-Japanese comparison was, was important for me um, because I grew up in a Germany that was very interested in examining evil history. Um, and at the same time, was still interested in teaching history. It's not you know, the, the response wasn't, oh, let's get rid of history because it's evil. But the response, really, the impetus behind all this was never again, right? That's what, by the time I go to school in the 70s in Germany, that's what history education was about. Um, that's a very broad caricature, obviously, but nevertheless. Um, that never again impetus is not present in Japanese history education. And that, that was really the root of where I was going with this comparison, how I got started on this in the first place. And so that is a that never again um, really is looking at history as a source of um, sometimes inspiration, uh, but of lessons and knowledge for the present, right? That's, that's where that fits in. Uh, 
in the Japanese context, uh, the, the knowledge is much more important, but not necessarily for contemporary application, right? Because what happens in history education then shows up in the, in the uh, entrance examination to universities where it is asked in an empiricist fashion, right? It is it, the, that entrance exam uh, as, the, as the big bottleneck for Japanese students and their experience of the education system doesn't ask the why questions either. It asks the what and how and where questions. Um, and so their history becomes a body of knowledge that is to be mastered for mastery of knowledge's sake, uh, but not necessarily to provide lessons to contemporary Japan. Change student in, in Japan, I, I took several history classes, and uh, I was very struck at how good the textbooks are. Not not in their narratives and their presentation of history, but there's lots of color photographs. There's lots of very interesting tables and things inside the textbooks. And I mean, just as a textbook, they're very well crafted, and they're much more interesting than American textbooks. In fact, whenever, you know, I, I have exchange students in my class who come from Japan and, you know, they ask me, like, why are these American textbooks so bland? <laughs> it's, there are almost no photographs. Maybe there's a couple color plates, uh, mm -hmm. but it's just text. What are you, I mean, have you thought about this? I mean, what, what is the, dis the difference or why is there such a distinction? Have you looked at textbooks recently? I think this may be a generational okay. fallacy that be, as we grow up, right, um, we, we, we have in mind the textbooks we use. So for me, that's the early 80s. And for you, it's significantly later than yeah. that. But uh, they may have changed since then. I, I'm um, thinking of the textbooks that I assign in class. Oh, university level textbooks. University level textbooks. Oh, okay. So that's a different matter. And those are much more current. Um, huh. So... So the Japanese textbooks became or gained high, call it production value, um, in the, I would say, probably in the 60s, 70s. Um, they, uh, but they have a lot of features that you would see in Canadian textbooks just as much. Um, maybe the timing was a bit different. So, of course, one of the features of the textbook, textbook approval system, now this is obviously for schools, not for university, right? But means regular replacement um, because they are on a regular approval cycle. And so publishers produce a new edition. Um, and so there was maybe a bit more of a mechanism uh, and, a, and an economic incentive because they're, they're commercial publishers in the updates to include production value. Um, that would be my guess as, as what that dynamic is so that we may have, because the regular replacement, uh, we may have seen faster adoption of, of what technology offers. I mean, all the things you mentioned in terms of color versus black and white. Um, but also more extensive use of maps um, or even just graphical uh, ways to distinguish a source from a narrative. I mean, uh, these are all things that are relatively standard in, in lots of things, but might have come in a little bit early in Japan. And I would look to that approval 
um, and production cycle as the likely explanation. But as I mentioned, it's also pedagogy professors that are writing these, not historians. And so they are interested in, in how to transmit this knowledge, right? They're, they're, as we just discussed, their view of history is one of knowledge transmission. And so they are interested in the mechanics of that. And so I think they're also interested in in production value because of that, because it's the because they're not so bothered and busy with the why question, they focus on that what question. In the U.S., there was a, a recent uh, textbook controversy, somewhat, uh, because many of the textbooks are are made by the same publishing companies. Houghton Mifflin, for example, uh, will send out pedagogical materials in addition to textbooks. They'll have kind of guidelines for all the instructors, uh, and so some critics would say that we're getting basically Houghton Mifflin's version of American history. Mm -hmm. And if Texas adopts the Houghton Mifflin version because it's such a populous state, that pretty much determines pedagogy for the entire country. In Japan, it's, we have the Ministry of Education guidelines, but is there individual publishing companies that dominate the market just like Houghton Mifflin in the U.S.? Or is, there, is it a kind of more... Uh, balkanized uh, industry? Um, so it varies a little bit by subject matter in school, uh, but for virtually all subjects, there are alternatives. Um, and so for history, for example, and what I looked at was the middle school history textbooks, uh, for this entire post-war period, uh, you have somewhere between, between six and nine publishing companies that submit and um, end up with approval. And from that list, then the prefecture, the, um, the Board of Education selects. And so you do have alternatives. Uh, there isn't that one company dominance. Um, but in terms of some of the things we've talked about, in terms of content and portrayal, they are fairly homogenous. Um, until, of course, that Tsukurukai comes in with their revisionist history. Um, and that begins to look a little bit different. Um, but the others, uh, there are, you can recognize a certain company uh, in that it has, there's some patterns to them over the different editions, uh, but they are not vastly different one from the other. How many schools have now adopted the Tsukurukai uh, textbook? It's always been non-existent in the market. I mean, it's been adopted by some uh, local authorities, but then in actual use, it plays virtually no role. I mean, it's, it's also, you know, the, the Skurukai book is interesting because the, re the bureaucratic response is one of, is an empiricist response that essentially says, we're sending you back corrections where you depart from that narrow empiricism. So it works to the left and the right, right? They rejected some uh, textbooks because they saw uh, they saw what question, and when they see what question, they don't like it, whether it's progressive or reactionary, if you will. And so some of the response, in fact, to the Tsukurukai was, was in the, the same pattern that you would have seen elsewhere, which, which is interesting because mostly the view or the portrayal of Monbu Kagaksho or the Japanese government in general um, has been that it is part of some uh, vaguely conservative, if not more nefarious conspiracy in history education. I don't think that's quite right because the, the at the bureaucratic level, at least, the ministry really does operate on this empir empiricist um, criterion for approval, 
Now it gets a little fuzzy sometimes, but the, the instinct is to say whether that's a revisionist history or a progressive history, our response is we don't want the what we don't want the analysis, we don't want the interpretation, we want what they might think of as just the facts. Now, of course, as a historian or even a historical sociologist, we're pretty skeptical of history as just the facts. But that's how it ends up. Meiji at 150 podcast is hosted by Tristan Gruno at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada. This podcast would not be possible without the cooperation of the UBC Center for Japanese Research and the technical assistance of the UBC Faculty of Arts, ISIT. Find out more about the Meiji at 150 project, including the Meiji at 150 lecture series, digital teaching resource, and workshop series by visiting our website. Meiji at 150.arts.ubc.ca. Thank you for listening.